Hello, and welcome to What Matters, a Paul Hastings podcast about important legal issues and their impact on business and society. I'm Wendy Adler, and in this unique episode, we'll hear the extraordinary story of 43 female Afghan soldiers who worked with the U.S. military and how Paul Hastings' pro bono counsel, Renata Paris, spearheaded an incredible effort to file U.S. asylum applications for these women. We'll talk with Mary and Malia, members of the U.S. military who worked with these Afghan women, known as the Female Tactical Platoon, and helped get them and their families out of Afghanistan. We'll also talk with Renata about how she and Paul Hastings became involved in the asylum process for these women. Due to their current status as active members of the U.S. military, we will not be using Mary and Malia's last names. It's also important to note that the views expressed by Mary, Malia, and Renata are their own views and do not necessarily reflect the views of any organizations with which they are affiliated. Welcome to What Matters. This is such an interesting story. Mary, can you please tell us about the female tactical platoon and why they were so important? I came to know the the female tactical platoon um, as serving as a cultural support team member. Um, I first joined the program in 2013 and the female tactical platoon was stood up in 2011. So they were, they were already there when I got to Afghanistan. But my role as a cultural support team member was um, to search women and question them on targeted objectives with the Special Operations Command. Uh, they had been already obviously at war for about 12 years before they figured out that or before they were able to bring women out and realize that um, they were missing, you know, 50 percent of the information picture that was that was out there. And then uh, they also saw that American women were effective. But, hey, someday we'll leave and hopefully we'll have, you know, we want to leave a legacy behind. So they wanted to train uh, Afghan females as well. That's how the female tactical platoon was stood up Um, when I first got to Afghanistan. They were small. There's about eight women um, that were there, and they grew to about about 45 by the time we left. Who were these women, and what kind of training did they receive? Well, I always say, you know, everyone dreams about meeting their heroes, and I got to I got to work with mine. These women uh, came from the the streets of Afghanistan, from you know various provinces all all over, um, and they came to us. Uh, most of them weren't physically fit yet because there's just not uh, ability for Afghan women to to work out, especially in the more rural areas than, um, as, as we have. And so they would, they would come and we would do like some sort of, you know, physical fitness test or something like that. And then, um, a lot of times they weren't in great shape, but they had, uh, they had a drive and a tenacity to them and they, they, they wanted to be, so they would work with us. Um, most of the training involved, uh, same thing our military does. They're trained, you know, highly in, um, in like weapons, tactics, uh, close quarters combat. They were, um, we were always working on physical fitness with them and we're extra proud when we would train them to a point where they were giving us a run for our money and a lot of them still do. Um, they were trained in uh, medical uh, procedures just to make sure like tactical uh, casualty combat care. And they were trained in like uh, basic questioning just to understand um, who was there that night or kind of what what the information picture was when we arrived to kind of more sensitive areas where we knew there's a lot of uh, enemy in the area. What was it like to work with these women? They were going after uh, targeted objectives of both 
the U.S. and Af- Afghanistan. So, um, you know, there's that common bond we had where we were both, I think everyone went in there with the mindset that we would be training them. And then a lot of CSTs came to find out, um, CSTs, what we refer to our cultural support team members as, a lot of them would find out that some of these women already had two or 300 missions under their belt. So we would learn more from them than they would learn from us sometimes. Um, we always had stuff we could train them on, but there was always kind of big life lessons they would give us. What were some of their major accomplishments? In terms of accomplishments for them, can't really get too much into like mission specifics or anything um, like that. But yeah, they were involved with some really big um, missions and they were definitely involved in making sure that some uh, really bad people um, weren't able to keep doing some really terrible things. Malia, can you describe your first experience with these women? I was able to do a deployment out to Afghanistan and meet and train alongside these women. Um, I actually first met them when they were doing a female tactical badge, um, which is something very standard in the U.S. military and same qualifications as us of six mile ruck. So that's heavy backpack. Um, You have to do it in an hour and a half. You have to do all these shooting calls, all these various things. Um, And I went in with like medium expectations and they just blew my mind at how capable and motivated and just all around quality soldiers these women were. What motivated these women? I think it was multifold and one being able to do this trailblazing position of being a woman in the military, um, getting to do the missions that many people dream of being able to get to go out and actually do the the dirty work of peace and security um, in some of the hardest missions. Um, and just getting to do it with a group of motivated women is something really rare and special. And I think just from the community that the program created and growing up in a place of war and being able to make a difference, um, I think a lot of that attributed to to their motivations. I don't know if you have anything more on that, Mary. I think they, uh, like any, um, you know, big, I guess they're not a big group, but like any group of people, they have like all sorts of, like Malia was, was talking about, all sorts of motivations. So um, for some, it was the the highest paying unit out there and they have kids to take care of. And so they had these really very real basic human needs. Um, and for, for a lot of them, there was, you know, uh, ideological motivation that um, they saw things in their country that they didn't like and they wanted to put themselves in the, the hardest position um, to try and make changes. And others, their friends were in the unit and they followed them, followed them there. Um, and it was it was really uh, special for I think I can speak for most CSCs and say it was really special to see that the bond that they they formed together, no matter what their their background was. Um, and then they definitely p- pulled us into that pretty strong bond even before they came to the U.S. There's a big gap, isn't there, between the role of a traditional Afghan woman and that of a soldier. Can you describe that? I think there's a huge gap. So for for me, a, a kind of stereotype that I've been trying to, to fight since the day I met them, I think most people view Afghan women as victims. Um, and there's definitely an aspect of, of victimhood. And there's um, for sure some very huge, difficult parts of all of their lives. 
Um, but these women, like to me, they're superheroes. I mean, they're they're strong and they're um, they're physically fit and they're driven and they're hard workers and they're extremely extremely um, smart and dedicated. So I I think for me, one of the biggest things I wanted to change. I think most people still have that that image from the start of the war of women in in burkas, which unfortunately we're going back to. But then we've also got you know be behind all of that there's this you know kind of super superpower of uh of women out there and these guys really embody that i guess just kind of hearing mary talk i think the one thing that americans learn the most from these women is that they were able to be so strong and powerful and fierce soldiers and then also retain their femininity of who they were and didn't have to pretend to be someone else because it was so unprecedented to start with. Um, and that's what I've taken away the most from them in my like career today is just owning who you are and that you deserve to be there because you worked really hard to get there. And so you don't have to change and pretend to be someone else. When did people realize that things weren't going well? And when did efforts begin to try to get these women out of Afghanistan? We first started really working to get them out in um in probably April of 2021, uh, just kind of seeing the writing on the wall, not having any advanced knowledge than, than anyone else, but just kind of knowing that things weren't looking good. There's the negotiations going on um, and that these uh, these women that we've built this like incredibly special bond with, we knew um, we're going to be in, in, you know, pretty big danger as soon as the U.S. left. I don't know. It's hard to look back and kind of dig into what we were thinking. I don't. I don't remember expecting the government to collapse or anything like like that. We were just concerned. Period of. We knew they could handle themselves absolutely, um, and a lot of them were looking at us and saying, "You know, if the, if all the good people leave, then who's who's left?" And I remember just being so struck um, and. In, proud and impressed of that attitude and terrified at the same time um, of losing any one of them or um, the danger that they were going to face and couldn't couldn't imagine not going back there without them or going back there and not going back there anymore and seeing them. But but yeah, none of us kind of expected. I, I can't say none of us. Um, no one that I've talked to expected things to to collapse that fast. So we were just trying to submit them for special, uh, special immigrant visas as we started to learn more and more about that path. So there's a group of about six or seven of us that was just between probably like April to May trying to figure out what we were doing. Um, and then like probably June or July started figuring out that we needed to try and get them in for um, those SIVs, but then realizing uh, they didn't work directly for the U.S. They weren't on the U.S. payroll, so they didn't and still don't qualify for them. Thank you, Mary. Malia, even when the focus was on just trying to get these women out of the country, you and others knew that they would need additional support. Can you talk about that? Like Mary said, there was only a handful of us trying to track all their data and their location and where they were going um, as we were like rapidly being able to get multiple women and their family out of the country. And that's when we kind of took a step back and realized like the evacuation is the sprint of this longer marathon of resettlement that is to come as these women leave their homeland and 
are traveling across the whole world into the unknown that we need to make sure they know that we're going to stand beside them every step of the way. And this sisterhood of U.S. and Afghan women is not going to stop now. And that is where Sisters of Service kind of came into play. And we set up a mentorship program where every Afghan woman, woman who was evacuated would have a U.S. service member to be her buddy, to just be there to answer questions throughout the journey and kind of just step up wherever the needs were. How did you go about trying to get them out of the country? A few days before the everything uh, fell was our original thought was if we got one or two out, it was going to be a miracle um, just because the odds seemed that stack, stacked against uh, them. And we were knocking on just about every door trying to see what we could do. Um, and then uh, they, the, we started hearing more and more districts falling um, and we had set up a kind of a phone tree with them just saying like, Hey, as soon as we find something out, we're going to uh, get you guys going um, towards maybe towards the airport. We didn't, we didn't know what it was going to look like. Um, and then that, that got activated and we had a huge group of them outside one of the, um, one of the gates and it was terrible conditions. Um, we didn't know how quickly we would be able to get them through a gate when we told them to go. We, I think we were successful because we had um, planned it out already. Um, we already had a message translated into Dari that was just going to go to all of their phones with like as as much specifics as we could, even though we were working with like um, not very much information. Um, and we were we were um, we were operating on our own. None of this was. Um, this is all uh, outside of being. Um, like still active duty soldiers or anything like that. We knew, we knew that this was, was kind of our thing with them. Um, so they were outside the gates probably for about 24 hours for some of them. And for some of them, it was six, seven, um, eight days of just showing back up at the gates and trying to figure out if we could, uh, get them through. So for, for one group, it was a, a big group kind of surrounded them and pulled them into the airport. And then after that, it was much more fragmented and difficult to get them, inside but it was just kind of these sporadic crazy communications and a lot of people staying up for for weeks on uh, I think there's a lot of people that didn't sleep for about two weeks just sending messages trying to reach out to anybody they they could to try and figure out where to get them in or how to get them in it was just chaos and anytime we would call them you know you'd hear gunfire in the background you would hear explosions going off and you didn't know if that was coming from the Taliban you didn't know if that was um, coming from, you know, warning shots, trying to control the crowd, but it was just, it was just absolute, I don't think we can do it justice from their perspective, but it was just absolute chaos. And did anyone know which planes they would end up on or where they would be going? When we first set up the FTP assist, um, email that, that Malia now, uh, runs, it, it was just the, the only reason we had it was because we wanted to send them out in the initial email because we didn't know like it's, our thought was they're going to get on these planes we don't know where they're going to end up they need an email something that they can always reach back to and we'll figure out how to um, help them but no but to my understanding they didn't have um, a choice where they were going or what plane to get on they were just being kind of shuffled to different planes 
What happened next to these women and how did you continue to help them? As Mary was saying, they would get on a plane and get off a plane and get service again and tell us like, hey, I'm in Qatar, I'm in Germany, or I think I landed in Washington, or like Washington, DC, Washington State, like just trying to piecemeal where are these women physically in the world um, so we can see how to best support them um, and understanding that this is going to take a whole community and also seeing how many women that had already worked with these women want to be supportive and want to be that community for them. And just really harnessing that is kind of where Sisters of Service came to be. So as the Afghan females were evacuating, really as they were still in Middle East or Europe or third countries before they had been resettled into their final state is when we realized um, there's this huge gap that we could fill. And we were able to evacuate 42 women and their families. And so we just started networking to find 42 mentors that could be matched and paired alongside these women. None of us are resettlement agency qualified or knew much about asylum prior to a year ago or really had quote unquote qualifications to be doing this kind of work. But we cared and we knew the strength of these women and we knew we could figure it out and Google it along the way. Um, and so just as they were resettling and again, like coming to a military camp where they were being processed for a while and figuring out where they were actually going to be relocated and living, um, we just matched them to some sort of American support who could be there to answer um, a question of a photo of a bag of chips and explaining like, what are these to um, how do I get a work visa to what is asylum and how does this work? And so the program that we stood up, we really didn't know what it was going to be other than following these women in their journeys. Um, and so we had no intentions of getting into asylum as they were evacuating and then realized quickly that you really can't feel stable and settled in the U.S. unless you know about your status and your future. And so much of that was asylum. And that's kind of when we shifted um, to getting involved in that work. Turning to the asylum aspect of the situation, Renata, how did you first meet these women? So I came to know Malia and Sisters of Service through one of their fellow sisters um, is a current, currently works for the Department of Homeland Security where I used to work. And in the aftermath of much of what Malia is discussing right now, she contacted me and asked me if there was any way that we could help support um, the immigration efforts, knowing that I understand immigration law quite well and that the firm has an immigration uh, pro bono practice. So that's how I came to know Sisters of Service. Can you walk us through how you started to work with them and describe how the project expanded to provide the help that these women needed? this work together has had several lives and several iterations because when i first started talking to malia and mary and ruthie we were very much talking about the viability of the special immigrant visa program for these women and i also at that time didn't have my confession is that i don't think i had a full appreciation either of the community to which we were coming um i i understood that there were these very specially positioned female, um, former, you know, 
former soldiers from Afghanistan, but I didn't really understand the interconnection between the U.S. military special operations, female cultural support teams and the female tactical platoon members. Um, and it was over, I mean, we started working together, I think it was October or November of 2021, um, talking about the the various women and which applications they had filed and which applications were really going to be most successful. First, concentrating on that special immigrant visa program and the P visa refugee program. Um, and at that time, Paul Hastings was really working in more of an advisory role and specifically me with Sisters of Service. Um, sometime around January of 2022, Paul Hastings ended up taking on three of the female tactical platoon members, and in particular, one of the leaders of the female tactical platoon, thinking that if we did her case well, it would serve as a scalable model for other members of the female tactical platoon. So let's take on this one person's case, and then we're gonna share the process and the procedure and the law under which we proceeded with her application for the other women. Um, and that was where I think we started to really get into the nuts and bolts of, of her, not only her, application but also what was really going to end up happening with this population of phenomenal women and and it wasn't until i would say probably march of 2022 where we were still very much evaluating siv and sending out update letters and i was doing a lot of advocacy on the siv program with the department of homeland security under sort of separate cover that we started having discussions about asylum and saying you know these these women are not clearly eligible for SIV. Um, the P visa program is is probably also not viable, even though they may be getting refugee benefits under those programs. But we really need to start thinking about asylum because it's probably the most definitive way of getting them permanent status and letting them transition into some sort of permanent life here in the United States. Um, and that coincided actually directly with the executive order that the current administration put out um, called Ap Operation Allies Welcome, which was the current administration's recognition of the fact that there were these people living here from Afghanistan who had served in these capacities that may not be eligible for SIV, but were very deserving of a process that was going to enable them to have some sort of more permanent status in the United States. Um, it was in May of 2022 that I was I, I was actually moonlighting as a Sisters of Service trainee for some of the mentors, giving kind of immigration law 101 training to a bunch of the mentors. And I think it was during that time that we started having discussions about, you know, this is kind of this is kind of silly. Um, like we we need to just stop giving trainings and just find a way to take on each of these cases and we can't do that by ourselves so we need to start pulling in other firms um and and that actually directly coincided this process has evolved very organically which rarely happens as we all know um that happened at the exact time that there was a story written in the news by one of our news outlet partners about the partnership that we, Paul Hastings, had formed with Sisters of Service, where I actually had several partners from other law firms reach out to me who had read that article and said, we really want to help with this. So if there's any opportunity for us to help, 
please let us know. And I said, in fact, there is. <laughs> you are welcome to help and we would love to have you. And so that was sort of the creation of what is now our, our legal task force of these five global firms, each of which have taken on um, a certain portion and ratio of the female tax goal platoon. But, um, and, and now we have filed applications, I think it's for 90, I would say 95%, maybe 92%. Um, and the 8% that have not been filed have been for reasons that are good. Uh, there's reasons that we haven't filed yet for them. But we have applications filed and we worked together all summer, I mean, to get these applications filed in a way that was cohesive and was really putting forward the best arguments, but also the most consistent arguments um, to make sure that that no one of their applications jeopardized any of the others. Um, and we had our first grant of asylum two weeks ago, which was a huge um, I think that for as far as morale boosting, that was awesome for the for the team. And it happened to be two or three days before we all united in this amazing gather event in D.C. So we were all together a couple of days later um, in Washington. Really, we were flies on the wall to this um, to this sort of community. I assume that it's a good sign that one of these women was granted asylum. Does this bode well for the others? we very much b believe and are committed to the idea that all of these uh, applications should be granted um, without second question. Um, we put together actually legal briefs that were used by each of the members that filed that put forth the most strong argument for asylum. And these women are eligible for asylum under not just one, but probably four different protected grounds under U.S. refugee law. Um, so we we put our best foot forward in all of the filings with all of the women. They were all, I mean, they are already a population of of people who are super trained and intelligent and and interview very well. Um, so preparing them for the asylum interviews was not a heavy lift at all. Um, but just preparing them for what an asylum interview looked like not to be alarmed by anything that may be perceived as sort of adversarial in the questioning, not to be alarmed by questions that were related to national security and military training and weapons training, um, the kinds of questions that if you weren't prepared to know that that was routine, you may say to yourself, well, this isn't going very well. You know, so we put a lot of time and effort into making sure that they were prepared and then on the legal side, making sure that we were putting forth the strongest legal arguments that we could right from the beginning. Um, and we, we are, I have no doubt that they are grantable. And so now we're just waiting to hear back from the various asylum offices. Um, we've had about, I would say 50, maybe 40 to 50% of them have interviewed. Um, we're still waiting on the other half of them to have interviews. Um, some of them live in more rural geographic locations where it's there's more of a backlog um, for for interviews. But the one, I mean, the one grant for us was really just a quick example of how we think they should all go. And it, what was nice was that we saw the Department of Homeland Security actually carry out their commitment to adjudicating these applications quickly. What are the grounds for them to be granted asylum? You mentioned that there could be up to four. Can you describe them? 
Yeah. Um, while while being very protective of their asylum confidentiality, I it, generally speaking, the protected grounds for asylum are race, ethnicity, religious beliefs, particular social group, um, and political opinion. And, and you can imagine that these women, based on the activity that they conducted in Afghanistan and who they were working with and what they were doing, um, and and many of them come from certain ethnic backgrounds that even had they not been serving in the female tactical platoon would have been targeted by the Taliban for other reasons. Aside from the fact that they are female, they belong to certain ethnicities that are being targeted by the Taliban. And then you just add on top of that, their specialized training and the work that they did, and they quickly become probably one of, if not the most vulnerable type of population that you can imagine in, in a government like Afghanistan, um, the current sitting government of Afghanistan. Um, so that they, 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 they check all the boxes for being deservant of not only asylum, but, you know, the Convention Against Torture and other types of of protection law that the U.S. holds dear. How important was the help provided by Paul Hastings and Renata and the task force that she was able to create with other law firms? And we should mention the other law firms here because they were an important part of the effort. The firms are Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, Hillsbury, Winthrop, Shaw, Pittman, McGuire, Woods, and Vetter Price. Sure. If I could first give one more just kudos to Renata about being able to set up this task force and how important that that was. Um, like she mentioned, there's no reason they shouldn't be granted asylum. Like they have every card against their favor um, currently in Afghanistan. But knowing and listening to that story takes a dedicated legal group that is willing to understand. And you have these women that just fled their country have compounded trauma and have had to tell their story over and over again. Um, before this task force took them on, only two or three of the women outside of the ones Paul Hastings took on had lawyers. Um, just because of the extreme shortage of how many Afghans are in the United States right now and how stressed systems were. So this was a massive lift um, when we were able to create this comprehensive team that was going to really take the time to understand these women's complete and full story and why they qualify for asylum and really advocate for them. Um, and being able to have Renata take time on her Sunday night to jump on a Zoom call to break down and answer questions of all these women as they're holding their babies and listening and um, are terrified. Like this process is terrifying. It's deciding if you're gonna be able to remain in the United States or not. Um, so it's just so critical to be able to have a team that cares and the fact we were able to do it in a community like this um, meant the world to these women and to our team as well. So I just wanna make sure she gets all the credit for just how incredible this task force has been. Just to build on not how incredible we are, but how important this is, I see them getting the asylum status as foundational. It's it's almost righting a wrong and, and really allowing them to now engage in the kind of work relevant to your question. These women are trained, educated, specialized, intelligent people who should be given every work opportunity in the United States 
um, that people of those qualifications should have. Um, and and I think the un, the sort of untold story of a lot of the reporting on all of this has been what Mary was talking about earlier, which is the that this is all being carried out and sort of the legacy of the cultural support team from the US military as sort of this extension of, I mean, this is like, this has been, for me, what has been absolutely striking working with this group is this is like a collision of the Titans. Where we, we talk a lot about the female tactical platoon, but Mary and Malia and their colleagues were absolutely groundbreaking for the United States military. Um, and the work that they did was groundbreaking. And then they carried that out in Afghanistan, informing this female tactical platoon. So in a lot of ways, this community now in setting up the female tactical platoon members in the United States for where they probably should be in their current roles is succession planning from the cultural support team, female special operations, US military at its very best. So it's really a continuation of a legacy that um, I don't think struck us in the beginning as much as it strikes me now. Mary, the work that you, Malia, and other members of the US military did, not only to get these women out of Afghanistan, but also the ongoing support you're providing. This wasn't part of your official military duty, was it? This is something that you all did on your own, above and beyond your military service, wasn't it? This is us honoring uh, a sisterhood. Like this was a, um, this is a really tight knit group. Um, even a lot of uh, CSTs who didn't have the honor of working with the FTPs have just like rallied around them. So I, I think especially to that you know core group of just a, a few of us, there's just no question that if if we were in trouble, there would have been there i mean we have been in rough times and had had them right along um side us so there's just no question that they they were in danger and we were going to be there um for them at the same time and and for us it was just you know it was the it was the right thing to do and we were honored to do it but i don't think any of us would have been able to to sleep at night without putting like everything we could towards um getting them to safety where I kind of push back with people is there's this like narrative that we rescued them. And I'll always tell people that the FD, FDPs rescued me. Um, I had, you know, uh, different deployments that were difficult and kind of had a thought in my head and what Afghans were. And then I met the FTPs and they turned my like world around on, on, you know, meeting these in, incredible uh, people. So I think, you know, it, it wasn't, necessarily in our job description but it's who this group of of people is and and are and just like it's for me it's been the experience of a lifetime to be to be a part of it and then uh to have had the opportunity to meet you know people like renata that that see this group and you kind of you can't meet the female tactical platoon and not fall in love with them they'll pull you in really fast whether you want them to or or not because they're just um they're they're impressive and they're they're driven and they're they're real people too they've got you know real real people problems and ups and downs and and uh so i, I guess i wouldn't use the words above and beyond it's just kind of the right the right thing in my mind malia can you talk a bit about what life is now like in the u.s for these women so it's it's very mixed right now. The women are spread across 18 states, um, all the way up to Alaska. 
and everywhere in between. Um, there's some, one was working as a roofer for a while. We have some baristas, uh, Chick-fil-A cashiers. One's working for an Afghan asylum um, firm, actually. So all over the place with kind of careers that they're currently in, many of them juggling English classes as well as having children at home um, and still finding time to like join a boxing class. One woman wants to be the next and best MMA fighter. Um, like their dreams are truly inspirational. Um, many of them want to eventually join the US military, something they can't do until they have citizenship. Um, so in the meantime, are finding all kinds of jobs in between, but they, they're incredible. Um, many of them have given, we've had six new American babies from our female Afghan group. So that's super exciting. Right now there's a big push to get driver's license. So, uh, a lot of FTPs on the road, look out. <laughs> um, they're probably better drivers than me though, to be fair. Um, and a lot of them have brought their families over, so teenagers in high schools and in various opportunities there. So it's incredibly diverse, um, but it's been really incredible to be able to do like weekly sync calls with them where we're learning about financial advising or fun calls learning about fashion and how to dress up for the gala that we all went to this last weekend or um, how to cook pizza in your oven. Just just across the board, learning opportunities on both ends. And so it's been really um, just an incredible journey. What does the future look like for them? I'd say the future looks bright because of how incredibly driven these women are and not because it's easy to be a refugee in the United States. Um, it's insane how difficult it is to fix something as simple as your birth date was wrong on the employment card that you were given and now this is gonna complicate your asylum, which is gonna complicate you being able to get your net access to further rights. Um, so just being able to walk this journey alongside of them has been eye-opening into just how difficult it is to get anything done, let alone when English isn't your first language and you're trying to pay the bills and you're compromising by working at Chick-fil-A when really you just were in the most elite unit um, doing incredible mission sets. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's complex. Um, but we do goal setting and we have had an incredible network of support, um, different individuals, many of them refugees themselves that want to work alongside these women or show them opportunities or just, um, just listen and be there along their sides. And so that's, really was the vision of Sisters of Service is being able to create that community, just knowing how complex life as a refugee is in the United States. Renata, in terms of their status here in the US, is asylum just the first step? What happens next and can you describe the process? Unfortunately, US immigration law is not easy, comprehensive or quick. Um, once they're granted asylum, they become a refugee um, here in the U.S. and they hold that status for one year before they can apply to become a legal permanent resident. Um, and once they become a legal permanent resident, they have to wait uh, three years to apply, five years to be granted U.S. citizenship status. 
Um, and those are the statutory guidelines. Backlogs can always make that process longer. Um, but really the grant of asylum and that that ability to not only have continuing status that's permanent, it comes with the ability to work in the United States, to apply for family members overseas, to come over and join them. Um, that's a huge step forward. And, and the rest of it will, will sort of fall in line over time. But that initial grant of asylum is really what starts them on their pathway. I mean, it's, there's a reason they call it pathway to citizenship. It, it's, you, you get that first grant and then the rest of it is supposed to sort of develop and evolve organically. Mary and Malia, what else should people know about these women, the members of the female tactical platoon? I think it's important for people to know that that the odds have always been stacked against them in a lot of ways. Um, I always thought I understood kind of what bravery and heroism was. Um, you know, just seeing friends on the battlefield do incredible things, um, and and that still is you know what I define as bravery and, and heroism. But then uh, seeing these guys and the the sacrifices the sacrifices they made or the the dangers they faced just going to work every day just struck me, you know, beyond, I don't, I don't even know really how to put it into words. I remember just, you know, I'd be texting them to make sure they made it home safe at night when they'd be going home from training. Um, and they were, um, you know, they'd, they'd come riding in on the back of a truck and they'd have one sitting up higher in the back of this truck in civilian clothes. And it's a normal civilian car, so no one knew who they were, but they were still watching for magnetic IDs. Um, and, and that was just to come to training that wasn't going out on a mission. That was just their, their day to day, um, life. So these are, you know, highly specialized, brave women who are, you know, like I said, they're, they're my personal heroes and they're also real people with real problems and real backgrounds and, you know, incredible stories and they deserve, you know, we, we were luckily to have, um, General Joseph Hotel, kind of stand behind us and, and my favorite thing he said is just like these people deserve our help um and they are gonna you know make some of the most incredible american citizens that you know have ever walked if we once we get them to this point i'm not gonna say if because people like renata make me believe we're gonna pass that goal line but they're they're incredible and they deserve a um they deserve a a shot and like i'm watching them um, volunteer to help Ukrainian refugees. And I'm watching them, you know, building these communities around them already. And they've only been here a year. So I can't, I can't imagine what they're going to do in, in, you know, five, 10, 20 years from now. I'm just uh, glad I get to be a part of it. They have so many incredible dreams. Um, one of them out in Arizona is kind of shadowing her ROTC program because she wants to be a fighter pilot and be an army ranger because she worked alongside them. So it, it makes complete sense that she can do that again. And um, like I mentioned, one wants to be an MMA fighter. Um, many of them want to be able to return to Afghanistan and continue to make change in their own country. They have such a passion towards, towards their people, towards their families that they had to leave behind. Um, and so really have incredible goals and dreams. and the more people can keep stepping in and supporting these dreams along the way with Sisters of Service, be it English programs, um, scholarships, access to jobs that 
they're more than qualified, but it's just difficult to get at because of English as a second language. Um, and so really needing to lean on interpreting services now and, and really have solid English language training along the way. Um, the more the community can continue to step in and support not just these women, but all the Afghan refugees and refugees that have come to the United States, because we've been able to really grow a network of support. And there's so many out there that do not have that support. Um, so just kind of hope that their stories and the stories of Sisters of Service can just inspire more action in communities around us. As we wind up here, Mary and Malia, are there any stories or anecdotes that you could share to illustrate um, really who these women were, their pride, their strength of character? I wasn't personally there for that uh, one, but we did have uh, uh, FTP who um, escaped Afghanistan in three inch heels. And I got a picture again, we're like, we're, um, we're like kind of frantic, right? Because these are our, these are our people out there, and and all all we can do is is man our phones and try and get them over. And I get this um, picture. I knew a group had made it um, out, and I get the first picture of it. And I like I'm looking at them, like, all right, they look okay. Like, thank God. I'm feeling this rush of relief. And then I like zoom in a little bit. And I'm like, is she wearing this? Can't did you? and I start texting her. I'm like, hey, did you? escape Afghanistan in those shoes and she goes yeah and I was like they're three inch white and I'm the least fashionable person probably in the entire world but <laughs> that uh escaping Afghanistan in these three inch heels would not be an easy feat and she also um used to get like just like a decent amount of makeup on before missions and would come in just grinning from from ear to ear and we'd ask her like Okay, like what are you, <laughs> what are you doing? And she'd be like, "Well, if I if I die tonight, at least I die pretty." And then we just all start laughing. And then usually she'd be doing somebody else's makeup, but just you know, making light of a difficult situation. Also, like at a moment when people kind of need that levity in a lot of ways. And then also like that's just that's just her. She's one of our more like spunky and tenacious uh, FTPs. So then there's a lot of um stories like like that of them just their personality shining through everything especially kind of beside, behind the scenes with us because you know when they're when they're around um especially afghan men it's just culturally uh different they have to be a lot more reserved but my favorite nights were when we'd be off in rooms by ourselves and we'd have you know dance parties and henna parties and just you know the same hopes and dreams that american women have these guys have have that and more I guess one story just to kind of highlight like how intelligent they were. Um, one particular woman that I got to be really close with and work alongside was actually interviewing to be part of the UN gender advisor for Afghanistan. And it was probably like some of the coolest moments of my life of like sitting next to her and explaining to her like gender definitions and just kind of a lot of the legal academic side of it and her just understanding it so quickly from like her own lived experiences that like there's no better person for the job it's just making sure they have access to information and opportunity um to be able to get there and do that and that kind of remains the same right now is just 
um, without opportunities presented and kind of people on their side, um, it's really difficult to to be able to leverage just how talented these women are. While they wait for the citizenship process to play out, what kind of help do these women need now? The more access to education and scholarships, um, English as a second language programs, but also nursing programs or vocational programs, um, just things to help along the way for, for jobs in the immediate time where it's a little bit more of making ends meet and waiting for citizenship when they can be qualified to do some of the security jobs that they are more interested into eventually getting. Um, so scholarships, access to any kinds of trainings, and then we're always looking for more mentors for these women as well. And so just any support, like we said, they're spread across 18 different states. And so the odds are in your favor that one might be close to you that you can support them or their family or their friends as well. So if people want to help, should they contact Sisters of Service by going to the website, sistersofservice.org? Sisters of Service has our all of our contact information. You can read more on mission, vision, as well as the PinFed um, credit union, where we are always looking for donations to be able to support these women with rent or with educational opportunities or just day-to-day -day needs. And that will do it for this episode of What Matters. Thank you to our guests, Mary, Malia, and Renata, and thanks to you for listening. To learn more about how you can support members of the Female Tactical Platoon, please visit sistersofservice.org. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud to hear the latest episodes as soon as they're available. For Paul Hastings, I'm Wendy Adler, and thanks again for listening.